Let me ask you now, if you would, to open up your Bibles and let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are coming again this morning to the Lord's table. The Bible says that Christians are living stones. And when we gather together as living stones, we become a temple to God. And so this physical church building is not a temple to God, but we as Christians joined together are a temple to God. God comes and dwells among us. His Spirit is with us. And when we gather together like this, this becomes God's house. This table set before us. It's not our table. This becomes God's table. And and He invites us to come and have table fellowship with Him. Uh, We eat the bread and we drink the cup to remember that it was through the death of Jesus Christ our Savior that God is now our God. And that the communion we have with Him here is just a shadow, a foretaste of the sweet communion we're going to have with God through Jesus Christ in heaven itself. Now since last August, we have been taking our monthly Lord's Supper services to learn about the Lord's Supper itself. And there are still some some things that need to be said there, and I think we're going to do that on a couple of Sunday evening services. But I I want to move to something different beginning this morning. And I I don't know how long we'll do this. It may be three or four sermons. It may be more. But Lord willing, I want to take some of our Lord's Supper services to preach to us about the wonder and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, Specifically, what I want to do is draw our attention in each one of these services to a name or title of Christ that is found in the Scriptures. And I want us to understand what that name or title means. So for example, do you know what the psalmist means when he calls Jesus the cornerstone? Do you know what John means in Revelation 1.14 when, when Christ Himself, speaking through John, calls Himself the Amen? John calls Christ our Advocate. Hebrews calls Christ our Forerunner. Again in Revelation, we have this title of Christ, the, the Morning Star. What does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is the Morning Star? In Zechariah, Jesus is called the horn of salvation. What in the world does that mean? We could go on and on with wonderful, blessed names and titles given to Christ in the pages of the Bible. And I want to lead us on our Lord's Supper Sundays to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table by thinking about some of these names and what they mean. Now, Of all the names given of Christ in the pages of the Bible, which would you say is the highest, the grandest of all? 
Which name or title would you say is the loftiest? It reveals more than any other name or title just how awesome our Savior is. Well, many have suggested, and I'm inclined to agree, that the loftiest title given to Christ in the entire Bible is this one. He is the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And so look with me at 1 Corinthians 2. And here we have the Apostle Paul speaking to this local church in Corinth, a very pagan society. And he is contrasting the message preached by him and the other apostles with the wisdom of this world. So we're going to read beginning in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. And remember, this is the very Word of God. We read this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the first thing I want to do is walk through these five very important verses. Then second, I want to answer the question, how is Jesus the Lord of glory? And then third, I want to make some application to your life and to my life. So let's begin by walking or honestly running through these five verses. So we're just going to fly through these five verses. Verse 6. Verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So the mature in this verse is not speaking of mature Christians as opposed to immature Christians. That's, that's not the contrast that Paul is making here. In this passage, the mature are those who have come to accept the message of the gospel. Those who have heard the message of Paul and the other apostles and believed it. Or to put it differently, the mature in this passage are those who have humbled themselves to receive the wisdom of God being spoken to them through the apostles. The immature in this passage are those who cling to the wisdom of this age. And in their pride, they refuse to receive what God is saying through the apostles. Paul is making very clear in verse 6 that his message is very different from the kind of messages you receive out in the world. He is not another traveling guru offering the latest insights of philosophy or bringing the latest self-help advice. No, he says, I am bringing you a message, a kind of wisdom that is not of this world. Verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Don't make a mistake with verse 7. Paul is not saying 
that the message he is preaching is still a secret. No, it was a secret. It's, it's the secret of God that is now being made known through him and the apostles. Right? God has called him and the apostles to share the secret, to reveal the secret. For all of human history, until the first century, this message had been largely a secret. This message, what is this message Paul is talking about? What is this message that was largely unknown until the first century? Paul tells us, if you look back in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Look at that, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This was the great secret that people didn't know before the first century. How is God going to make things right? How is a holy God going to be able to have peace with sinful people? Genesis 3.15 promised that there would be a Messiah to make things right. Genesis 12 taught that this person would would come from Abraham and through him there would be a holy people and a, a blessed land and that God would be in the midst of his people. The Old Testament slowly revealed a little more, a little more. It probably becomes clearest in the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah. But it still was muddy. There still wasn't real understanding. What's going to happen to make things right? And it was in the first secret. I mean, in the first century, that the secret was finally revealed. God's method of making all things right and bringing sinners to Himself was that He would come to earth Himself as a human being. He would clothe Himself, God clothed in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and He would go and He would die on a cross for sinners. God would die. And that would be His method. And to the Jews, that sounds offensive. God dying. What kind of a God is that? That's offensive. To the Gentiles, it sounds silly. But Paul says to those whom God is calling to Himself, it is the greatest news in the world. This is the the news. This is the salvation plan that God had decreed before the foundation of the world. And now Paul says it's being made known. Verse 8. Verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So had the Sadducees... And the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin really understood who Jesus was. They would never have plotted to crucify him. Had Pilate understood who this man was, Pilate would have never consented for this man to be killed. Had the emperor of Rome understood who Jesus was, he would have come to Jerusalem himself to set Jesus Christ free and to keep him from that cross. And he would have fallen at the knees of Christ and he would have worshipped. But what Paul says is that none of the rulers of that age did understand who Christ was. They didn't understand God's plan. They didn't understand where this man from Nazareth fit in. 
What did they not understand? He says they didn't understand who He was, namely, the Lord of glory. Verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. This is one of the most often misread, misused verses in the Bible because it's usually used at funerals as though it's talking about heaven. Often at a funeral, a preacher will read this verse and say, what we haven't seen, what we haven't heard, what we haven't imagined, God has ahead for us in heaven. That is not what Paul is saying here at all. That's ripping the verse way out of context. This verse is saying that for so long, people had not seen nor heard nor imagined the amazing way that God was going to save His people. They had not seen or heard or imagined what God would do to make things right with sinners. But now, through the preaching of the Gospel, we do know. We have heard Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Mount Hermon, we now know what the people of the Old Testament longed to know. We now know those things into which angels long to look. We now know how our sins were dealt with so that we can come by faith alone and be forgiven. We now know how the great gap between the infinite God and us finite people has been bridged. We have come to see that through Christ, sinners are not only forgiven of their sins, but they are made right with God Himself so that we actually become His children. So that He actually gives us His Holy Spirit. Right now, this very moment, God is working all for our good and He is working through us to bring light into this dark world. More than anything else, we have come to know that through Jesus Christ, we have sweet communion with God Himself. We sang it in both of our first two hymns this morning. He is our God. We are His people. Is there anything greater than that? He is my God, and I am His child. That has happened to us through Jesus. Old Testament, it could only be known through types and shadows and and, 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 and mystery. But now, we know what salvation is. We know how God has accomplished it. We see how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the center of it all. Here is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God has a name. And His name is Jesus Christ. Okay, having run through the text, I want to focus on the title used for our Lord Jesus in verse 8. The Lord of glory. Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 4 verse 8 that the coming Messiah would be beautiful and glorious. And when Jesus came into the world, He was indeed glorious. John testified in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of Jesus was not a physical appearance kind of glory. 
right? Jesus was not an unusually handsome man. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. There was nothing special about the way he looked that would have drawn your attention. What made Jesus glorious was that he came as the very Son of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Uh, if God the Father is the sun in the sky, then Jesus is the brilliant, blinding, radiant light that is coming forth from the sun. And we see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And there's James 2, verse 1. And I want you to see this verse to understand what I'm saying. So look with me at James 2, verse 1. James 2, verse 1. Because this is the only other place in our English New Testament where Jesus is called the Lord of glory. So James 2, verse 1. Look at it with me. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And now I want to tell you that what I just read is not exactly what the verse says in the Greek. The ASV and the other translations that we typically use add the word Lord into the verse to help us make sense of it. But that word Lord is not in the Greek. Here's what the verse actually says, and I think this is even more glorious. The verse actually says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Jesus is the glory. The glorious one. Jesus is the very definition of glory. All true glory in this world is Christ's glory. There is no glory that doesn't come from Him. If there is any attribute that you can point to and say that is a glorious attribute, it is an attribute of Christ. In God's dictionary, when we look up the word wisdom, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. And in God's dictionary, when we look up the word glory, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything that Russell Wilson or Tom Brady does today that can in any way be described as glorious, it will be only because they are a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ in that attribute. It will be a second-hand attribute that has been given to them that rightfully belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lord of glory? Well, I want you to see why this title was so wonderfully appropriate by giving you three realities. First, consider the glory of Jesus as God. The glory of Jesus as God. Acts 7 verse 2, Stephen is about to be stoned to death and he refers to God as the God of glory. So the statement that Jesus is the Lord of glory is actually a statement about Jesus' divinity. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus prayed that His Father would glorify Him with the glory that they shared before the creation of the world. Before Christmas, 
Before Jesus was a baby in a manger, he existed in eternity past as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he with the Father and the Spirit shared in unimaginable words, fail us to convey it, glory. How do you communicate something that you can't use words to communicate? How can we describe the glory that Christ knew as God before the foundations of the world? The best the scriptures can do is use the language of light. The glory of God is like brilliant, intense, pure, white light that captivates you and and overwhelms you. It's, It's a glory so bright and so hot that if you were to be in it, it would incinerate you in a millisecond. It is a glory in which words cannot do justice. That's the glory of Jesus as God. But now consider the glory of Jesus as glorified man. As glorified man. Because something astounding happened that we celebrate every Christmas. The divine Jesus Christ added to His divinity humanity. And as a human being, he came to this earth and he set aside all of that brilliant glory that was rightfully his in eternity past. He gave just a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? Peter, James, and John, for just a moment, they got this glimpse of Jesus in his rightful glory. But 99.9% of his life, Jesus was was closed up. He had set that glory aside. He was a humble human being. Shepherds, simple shepherds were there at his birth. He was a baby boy in a stable meant for animals. He was lying in a manger from which animals ate. His mother was a young woman and neither she nor Joseph were wealthy or powerful. Despite the pictures that people paint, Jesus did not have a halo hanging over his head wherever he went. There was no white glow shining off of his face. People heard him speak and they said, Isn't that the son of Joseph from Nazareth? There was nothing that would have struck people as glorious in his humanity. But after Jesus completed his work, after Jesus did his Father's will, he died and he was rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven as glorified man. Today, Jesus is not just glorious God. He is glorious man. And as man... God has now given all authority in heaven and on earth to Him. As one of us, as a human being, He now rules over the cosmos. As a human being, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sits on His royal throne. And it is He who by His power now unfolds the plans of God. And He works all things for the good of His people. Big things, small things, the orbit of Jupiter and minuscule microscopic atoms. He's over it all. He sends the Holy Spirit wherever He wills, to whomever He wills. He gives gifts to men. He has authority over all the angels. They do His bidding. He has been given a name by His Father that is above every other name. No army's captain. No nation's president. No kingdom's king. No empire's emperor. 
No Hollywood star, no American sports hero has ever had glory that in any way compares with the glory of Jesus Christ. Their glory is like a drop in the bucket. His glory is like a million, million oceans. Their glory is like a flickering candle. His is like the light of a thousand suns. Third, consider the glory that Jesus has secured for His people. He is glorious as God. He is glorious as glorified human. And now He has secured glory for His people. He is so glorious that everything He touches becomes glorious. He's like King Midas, right? Everything King Midas touched turned to gold. So full of glory is our Lord that everything that is His becomes glorious just by being connected to Him. So Matthew 19 says His throne is glorious. Why? Because it's His throne. Luke 13 says His works are glorious. Why? Because they're His works. The Gospel is glorious because it's His Gospel. His Spirit and His words and everything about Him is glorious because they're His. And when we are His people, guess what we become? We are glorious. Now you look around and you say, we don't, we don't look glorious. <laughs> right? We don't look like anything special. Remember when Jesus reached out to touch the leper? And everyone was afraid that the leprosy was going to travel from the leper to Christ. But that's not how it worked. It went the opposite way. Christ's wholeness went to the leper and cleansed the leper. That's what happens when Christ unites himself to us. When we come to Jesus Christ by faith and we believe in Him, we don't make Him sinful. He makes us pure and right in the sight of God. And by His Spirit, He is making us holy so that on the day we stand before God as Christians, we will be as blameless and as innocent and as clean and as pure as the One to whom we belong. All the leprosy of our sin gone by the touch of Christ. Romans 8.21 says that all of creation is groaning. The rocks are groaning. The seas are groaning. The mountains are groaning. The trees are groaning. The animals and the plants, they're all groaning for the day when this creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This creation was meant to be a home to perfect, glorified, image-of-God people. And that's been damaged, but it's going to be made right. This earth will become a new earth. The new heavens and the new earth will join together. This world will be made perfect and glorified people. The bride of Christ, the church, will dwell in glory with Christ forever and ever. Revelation says we won't need a son because Christ himself will be the son And we will bask in His glory. And we will reflect His glory the way the moon reflects the light of the sun. We will reflect His glory in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Is that encouraging? I hope that's encouraging. It's only the the best news in the whole wide world. Application. Application. As we prepare our hearts to eat and drink from this table... Exhortation number one, marvel at the love of Christ for sinners. Marvel at the love of Christ for sinners. 
We can measure the great love of Jesus for us by measuring how far He descended to come to our aid. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Look at how far He was willing to come to save your soul. He came a long ways. John Flavel said that if the very sun itself had become a tiny microscopic atom, or if the greatest angel in heaven became a lowly fly, even these would not compare with how far Christ abased himself in order to come to your rescue. He gave up those glorious robes to wear human flesh. He left a home in heaven to become the Son of Man without a place to lay his head. In heaven, he was praised by angels and heavenly beings. He left that never-ending worship service in order to be scorned and opposed and scoffed at and mocked. Jesus went from invincibility to experiencing the most agonizing pain we can ever imagine. The beatings and the lashes that he endured He gave up His crown of gold for a crown of thorns. He gave up His royal throne to be nailed to a wooden tree. He gave up immortality so that He could die for His bride. People in our day will do just about anything for a little bit of glory. And Jesus set all the glory in the world aside out of love for His Father and out of love for us as sinners. Marvel at the love of Jesus for you. Number two, marvel at the great privilege it is to be united to the Lord of glory. I mean, look around. We are just ordinary, regular people here today. We're sinners. We're deserving of hell. And yet now we have been made one with the Lord of glory. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is not just our King. He's not just our Lord. He is our Bridegroom. He is the lover of our souls. Borrow again from John Flavel, mixing his words with mine. Here is an amazing and an astonishing mystery. Here is the highest dignity and glory which people are capable of to be united both in the courts of heaven and by our very spirits to the Lord of glory. We are now bone of His bone. We are now flesh of His flesh. Dear Christian, do you know this? Did you know that you are now one with Christ in this way? Do you believe this? Does your heart not burn with love for Christ? This is the mystery into which angels long to look. Such a high honor as this never even came into the thoughts of godly men. To be made one with God, to share in His glory, it sounds like blasphemy. If there are any Muslims with us today, they would say it is blasphemy to say that you could become united to God that you could share in the glory of God. They would say that's, that's worthy of execution to make that statement. But the Bible makes it over and over. God has said it. Christ has said it. And Christ has made it happen. All we can say is, Oh Lord, who are we that You would stoop so far to take us to Yourself and to make us Yours? 
Who are we that You would unite Your strength with our weakness, Your infinite glory to our lowliness? This is grace forever to be praised and marveled at. Exhortation 3. Let us grieve at how blind our world is to the glory of Christ. I wonder, does it burden your heart that so many people that we live among and we live with and we work among and we work with, that so many people every day are so blind to the glory of Jesus Christ? They they don't get it. They, They don't see how wonderful He is. They do not understand how He is the wisdom of God, the center point of all history, the great answer to how we can have peace with Christ, peace with God. They, they do not realize that it is Christ who is reigning over all things, that it is Christ who holds their very lives in His hands. It is Christ who gives them life. It is Christ who sustains their lives. It is Christ who in His patience postpones their judgment so that they have time to repent. People would only know Christ's tender love. His amazing mercy. How He speaks so wonderfully to our souls. How He comforts us. Dear Christian, do you ever grieve that so many are in blindness? And should we not be resolved to speak as, to as many people as we can, as often as we can, about the wonders of Jesus Christ? What is worthy of being on our lips more than this? Boasting in Christ. What is, what is worthy of more words than the greatness of the One who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, and is reigning for us, interceding for us at the right hand of God? Let us be known as a people of one theme. You know, those, those folks over at Mount Hermon, they just won't shut up about Jesus. So all they talk about all the time. Jesus this. That's how we ought to be known. We have one theme that delights our hearts. It's like, I try and talk to them about sports, and somehow they bring it back to Jesus. I try and talk to them about the weather, and somehow they bring it back. It's like it's, like it's all connected to Jesus. Exhortation 4. Let us consider that it is an honor to serve the Lord of glory. It is an honor. For some kings, some presidents, some captains, we would be ashamed to be found in their service. What a shame to have been one of Hitler's men. What a terrible, dishonorable, despicable thing to attack women and behead children in the armies of Allah. But friends, we can always count it the greatest privilege in the world to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We can always count it a high privilege to be numbered among His people, heeding His call, waving His banner. Even the most menial service Scrubbing toilets, trimming the hedges. These things are not nearly so small when you remember who you're doing them for. And every calling that God places on our lives, and as we look to care for others in our community, and as we seek to serve here at church and to serve in this world for the kingdom, let us always remember that it is an honorable, joyful privilege to serve the Lord of glory. And should you suffer along the way, 
as you seek to serve Christ in your family and in your workplace and in your neighborhood, as you seek to tell others about the gospel and you sacrifice, you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your money and your energy and your thoughts and your emotions, you're laying it all out there for Christ. And should it ever happen that in the midst of that you are persecuted and you are mocked and you are underappreciated and you are unacknowledged, should it be that you find yourself being wounded in some way as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you, count it an honor to bear a wound for the Lord of glory. This is your red badge of courage. How the apostles rejoiced when they were beaten for preaching the gospel. We have no right to rejoice when we're suffering for sins that we've committed or poor choices we've made. But when we suffer for doing good, when we suffer under the banner of Jesus Christ, we know that our captain will reward us. We know that we will receive glory in heaven far beyond anything we can endure in this world. And we know that the love of the Lord is better than life. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. There has never been a cause worth giving our lives to greater than this cause, spreading the name and the fame of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an honor to serve Him and to be counted among His people. Last exhortation, number five. Let us long for the day when we will be with Him in His fullness and see Him in all His brilliant glory. Yes, our Lord is with us in this room right now. Our Lord is with us at the host of this table. By His Spirit, He communes with us now. He fellowships with us now. He nourishes and encourages our souls now. But don't we long for the day when we will see His face? Don't you long to behold Him? Don't you long to fall at His feet and to adore Him and to worship Him? And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's do so with this prayer in our hearts. Lord Jesus, come quickly. This table is fine for a while, but there's a marriage feast of the Lamb that is coming that is going to make this look pretty pathetic. And how we long for that day. These earthly suppers are wonderful, but how we long for the Lord's Supper to come, the great wedding feast when the bride stands before her bridegroom without wrinkle, without spot, ready to live with Him in His glory forever. May that day come soon when we will forever behold the Lord of glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, if there's a person in this room that does not know you, that has not come to trust you, that has not been baptized in your name and begun following you and walking in your ways, would you save them this morning? We plead with you, Father. We don't want one person in this room to leave and to find out that they will never be one of those who spends eternity with the Lord of glory. Father, give faith where faith is needed this morning. Father, may these truths we've discussed, may they bring refreshment and encouragement and help to hurting souls this morning. 
Father, may these truths echo in our ears for the next week so that whenever we're tempted to despair or anxiety or anger or any sin, may these glorious truths keep us on the narrow path, strengthened and joyful and encouraged. And fathers, we now come to the Lord's table as we think about the awesome cost of our salvation. Would you fill our hearts with love and gratitude and deep humility and amazement at the love of Jesus for us. Bless us now as we come to the table. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.